Support for WMFE comes from Orlando Science Center, offering four floors of wonder and discovery for families and curious minds of all ages. With exhibits, movies, and live shows that promote learning new skills, exploring fresh ideas, and cultivating a better understanding of the world around us. Tickets and more at osc.org. Policing space. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Last year, the Russian military blew up a defunct satellite in orbit, creating tens of thousands of pieces of space debris that remain a threat to astronauts and satellites in space. The U.S. government condemned the test and vowed to not conduct similar weapons tests in space, but according to the Outer Space Treaty, an international agreement signed by 112 countries aimed at governing space, the missile test was legal. So we need to figure out a way to restrict events like that. But even if we have a law, even if we had a law that said don't do it, how are we going to stop somebody from doing it? As more countries and companies leave the planet, governing space is getting increasingly more complicated. The evolution of intergalactic law, that's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. The Outer Space Treaty of 1967 forms the basis of space law. As of this year, 112 countries have signed the agreement that sets some ground rules when it comes to the use of space. But much like international law, its enforcement is challenging. And as more players enter the space game, like other geopolitical actors and commercial companies, space law is getting even more complex. To talk more about the foundations of the Outer Space Treaty and how the field of space law is evolving, we're joined by Michelle Hanlon, a space lawyer and instructor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. She's also the co-founder and president of For All Moonkind, aimed at protecting human heritage in outer space. Michelle, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much, Brennan. It's so great to be here. It, it really is great to have you and your insight for this topic. Um, I want to focus on the Outer Space Treaty. Give us some historical context. So I always like to start um, these these conversations about the Outer Space Treaty with reminding people exactly what it looked like in the 60s, what we thought that the what space was. And, and with the new photos we got from James Webb, it's a perfect juxtaposition because when we were negotiating the Outer Space Treaty, we were in the middle of a Cold War. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, obviously, distrust here on Earth. There still is, unfortunately. Um, but we had this concept of the solar system. You know, we had not seen anything like what we've seen in the ensuing years. So we really didn't have a concept of what we were talking about. The biggest thing for the negotiators of the Outer Space Treaty, um, and it was it was uh, guided by a UN uh, declaration saying we're going to form a committee, and the sole purpose of the committee is to keep the peace in space. Make sure we don't bring our petty squabbles um, into orbit and beyond. And so um, the context of the Outer Space Treaty and the negotiation of it, and a lot of people complain it has so many gaps and inconsistencies. Well, they did a pretty good job of keeping the peace in space, which was their their primary remit. Mm-hmm. Michelle, tell us what is in the Outer Space Treaty. So we, we know why we kind of... what climate we were in. Uh, but what does the document actually say? So again, let's go back and think about what, what the world was like. So I want you also to think about um, airspace. And we know here on Earth, right, a, a sovereign state owns all of the airspace above it, right? So you cannot fly over Canada or Russia um, without their permission. And if you do fly without their permission, they have every right on um, to shoot you down. So in 1957, when um, the, Russia, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, nobody complained 
nobody said, hey, wait a minute, you're going over our space. So, you know, stop, we're going to shoot you down. And because of that, we have what we call international, uh, sorry, um, instant customary international law. Um, and space became free, uh, free for all. Access to space, use of space, exploitation of space, free for everybody. So that is the fundamental precept of the Outer Space Treaty. Everybody has free access to space. And that free access is only limited by very few things. Um, so Article 1 sets that forth. Um, uh, everyone shall have free access to space. Everyone can um, has free access to all uh, things on other celestial bodies. Um, and we are going to, uh, it's the province of all humankind. The only restrictions on that are Article 2, um, a state may not claim sovereignty or may not claim territory um, in space, anywhere in space, by claims of sovereignty or any other means. Um, Article 3 says international law applies to space. Article 4 is our peacekeeping. It says, look, we cannot put nuclear weapons or weapons of mass destruction in space. And now note, there's a gap here. We can put conventional weapons in space. And it doesn't say, unfortunately, that all of space shall be used for peaceful purposes, but it does say the moon and other celestial bodies shall be used exclusively for peaceful purposes. Um, so those, those are the fundamental restrictions on our use and access of space. There's one more in Article 9, which says, uh, your activities in space must be implemented with due regard for the activities of others. Um, best guess, what does due regard mean? Who knows? And that's what this generation, our generation, has to figure out what due regard means um, with respect to all of the different activities we're now pursuing in space. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not a legal expert, Michelle, so I'm glad I have you here for this. But, you know, I, I know, you know, international laws are, are difficult to enforce or, or find jurisdiction for. I have to imagine that intergalactic laws would be the same way. I mean, who... Who is enforcing the Outer Space Treaty, or or is this kind of just a, you know, we agree to do good, um, and there are no consequences if we don't? So for a non-lawyer, you framed it perfectly. Under international law, enforcement is really, really difficult, and space law is fundamentally international law. So we have the name and shame and wagging your finger, um, but we know like how, how well does that work? So we, we actually, when you think about the Russian ASAT test back in November, um, unfortunately, under the Outer Space Treaty, that event was entirely legal. Um, so we need to figure out a way to restrict events like that. But even if we have a law, even if we had a law that said, don't do it, how are we going to stop somebody from doing it? Um, and so we really have to build. This is why the uh, United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space is so important, because it brings together people, um, all these governments, 104 nations, to talk about literally keeping the peace in space. And with that comes responsibility. And even though we haven't had an enforceable space treaty since the early 1970s, um, we have a lot of what we call soft law. These, these countries are getting together and making resolutions. We are really, and they keep reiterating, we are going to try and keep the peace in space. And what's really great about the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space is that it's, it, all the decisions are made by consensus. It's not an up and down vote. There's no, there's no vote and you can say, oh, I didn't vote for it, so I don't have to pay attention. Every single resolution that comes out of that committee, every single delegate has to agree to every single word. So now you can understand why it takes 15 or 20 years to, uh, to implement or to develop a resolution that everybody can agree on. 
But the process is really important because it brings everybody together and it, it builds that sort of uh, that that reputational, you know, you don't want to violate this because then you're not part of that, you know, the, the big boy table, the big kids table um, at the at the at the UN. Mm-hmm. Michelle, does this does this get complicated as we get farther and farther into the new age of space with 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 the people that are actually utilizing space air quotes here are are not just state actors but also commercial players does 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 the commercialization of space make this a little more difficult to get these this, these UN resolutions and and these kind of soft laws past so that yes the complexities have just absolutely exponentially increased um because we do have a provision in the outer space treaty article 6 says that any st- any state is responsible for the activities of its nationals in space. So um, let's put that in perspective. Here on Earth, um, I, I cross the border into Canada and I steal a case of candy bars and I come flying, I come running back to the U.S. with my candy bars. So what what happens? The U.S. says, "Okay, Michelle, you did a bad thing. We're going to turn you over to the Canadian authorities. The Canadian authorities will find me, put me in prison, but the government is out of it." If I'm on the moon and I go to the Canadian base next door and I steal a case of candy bars, the United States is liable. Even if the United States didn't approve me, even if I'm not even there with the U.S. government, if I'm there wholly as a private tourist, under international space law, the the U.S. government is liable for anything any of its nationals do in space. So this raises complexities just in terms of think about uh, space hotels. If you have a slip and fall in a space hotel, it's not you you uh, you sue the management you sue whoever the national is you know if it if it's a blue origin hotel then you're going to sue the united states so that's a that's a complexity that governments have to think about like what does that liability mean to them what does that liability mean to the taxpayer um and also you know the the other sort of complexity overlaying it all is what happens if somebody um actually um hijacks or um harms a commercial satellite what is the role of the government in response to that? How much do we want to protect the way, you know, on the open seas, we've protected our merchant vessels. Are we going to do that in space? Mm-hmm. Michelle, I can't stop thinking about Michelle Hanlon, the cosmic candy caper um, right now, but uh, <laughs> you're stealing candy bars on the moon. Um, <laughs> uh, but Michelle, I mean, it, it sounds like it's it's getting increasingly more complex. Um, what is the conversation now you mentioned that there there is, is the United Nations is tackling this, but but is, is the conversation shifting to we need to have more? We we need to do have have more enforceable policy in space. Is there a new outer space treaty on the horizon? Not a new outer space treaty. I would say there are many efforts to fill in the gaps of the outer space treaty. So we you know let's let's just. The Outer Space Treaty is there. It's not going away. There's nothing wrong with the Outer Space Treaty except that it it didn't anticipate or I don't know, maybe they did anticipate, but they couldn't agree on any more than the fundamental principles they did. So there are a lot of um, uh, NGOs out there coming up with ways to um, to fill in the gaps. And, and really what we're looking at is trying to understand what due regard means. And so one, of, one great example, um, and it's not an NGO, it's the Artemis Accords. So the United States... Um, it worked with uh, a, a core group of nations to create what they call the Artemis Accords, which are, uh, again, guidelines and principles. These are not treaty obligations yet. Um, 
And they say, and fundamentally, the Artemis Accords, which have now been um, ratified or signed by 20 nations, um, say we reaffirm everything in the Outer Space Treaty, um, and then we're going to add some stuff. So first, we're going to say we interpret Article 2, that one that says you can't claim territory. We, we interpret that to mean um, we, we can't claim territory. But if we extract a resource, we can use it, we can sell it, we can do whatever we want. So we can claim property of the resources that we've extracted. And then the other really important piece is they've said, and when we talk about going to the moon, we're going to implement some kind of you know, notification zone. Um, and so for us, due regard means, hey, don't get too close without letting us know and we can make arrangements for you to come visit um, or, you know, to, to see our, what we're doing. Because there's a, a lot of issues on the moon in particular um, with the plume effect, you know, getting too close to other objects can uh, destroy those objects because the regolith is so destructive. Um, so the, the Artemis Accords are an effort to fill those gaps and figure out what due regard means. And the, uh, the UN just put up a working group on space resource, looking at the legal issues of space resource utilization. So we're, we are doing things. I would really love to see uh, the commercial industry create their own code of conduct. You know, I think it's incumbent upon our commercial players to prove that they're responsible and they have they can do that now and band together and do that. And of course, you know, my other hat, um, when I'm not stealing candy bars on the moon, I'm trying <laughs> to protect the boot prints on the moon. So, you know, I think, I think coming together and figuring out how to protect our heritage in space is also a great starting point for understanding how we're going to relate to each other in space. Michelle Hanlon is a space attorney and is with the University of Mississippi and also is co-founder of For All Moonkind. Uh, we have a, I'll post a link to the conversations that we've had about that organization uh, in the show notes. Visit wmfe.org slash are we there yet? Michelle, thank you so much for, for coming back to the show. Brendan, thank you. What a, what a fun topic. Still to come, the efforts to govern space require more than just new laws. The challenges and path forward for making space for all, that's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. As we heard earlier, the Outer Space Treaty was a product of the Cold War and partly created in response to the risk of nuclear weapons in space. But as the use of space continues to evolve, there are new risks involved in space exploration. Aaron Boley is the co-director of the Outer Space Institute, an interdisciplinary organization looking at these risks and possible solutions. He spoke with Are We There Yet's Caroline Brockler. Aaron, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So for those who might not know, uh, what is the Outer Space Institute and what are, what are its goals? The Outer Space Institute is a network of researchers and we're um, working on transdisciplinary uh, problems and challenges to the exploration of space. 
And what I mean by transdisciplinary is that it can't be addressed by any single discipline. Uh, and so it requires engineers, uh, scientists, lawyers, social scientists, uh, as examples to address the problems that we face. Sure. And um, what is the future likelihood for the peaceful use of, of space? Well, it's something that we're going to have to work on. And uh, space, uh, its development has been uh, quite a complicated uh, situation. Uh, and we've seen that as soon as space uh, was used through satellites, that there immediately was the desire to develop things like counter space capabilities. So the, uh, because it was recognized that uh, through space, uh, you can actually have a lot of advantages uh, and use those for military purposes. And we're seeing uh, how space is being utilized for just that right now with the war in Ukraine um, being very prominent. And so we've seen uh, this expansion into space, uh, including with military aims, followed by then uh, a pullback when we realize that uh, actions in space have very severe consequences. And we usually don't quite think about that because we don't think of space as being an environment or, or something that is directly connected to us. But uh, to give you an example, uh, both the United States and the USSR looked at or, or tested nuclear weapons in space. And uh, those weapons were so effective in space in creating uh, artificial radiation belts uh, and um, uh, actually impacting uh, uh, operations on the Earth's surface through uh, um, the electromagnetic radiation that went through uh, that both the USS and the Soviet Union came together uh, with other leaders around the world and signed the 1963 Limited Test Ban Treaty, which uh, then led to uh, one of the foundational treaties in space law, uh, the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. And what they did is they prevented, they, they prevent the placement uh, and use of nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction in space. And so we saw this use of space and the people went, whoa, 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 whoa. That, that was a little, that was, that's too much. <laughs> and that, that recognition uh, was there. Uh, and so there was actually law making that happened as a result of that. What we're seeing uh, now is not as extreme in the sense of the use of nuclear weapons, but we are seeing that kind of give and take where through counter space capabilities, states have throughout the years uh, demonstrated that they could at will destroy satellites. And so uh, the Soviet Union followed by Russia has done this. The United States has done this. Most recent, um, fairly recently, India did it in 2019. And then uh, Russia did it again in 2021 to uh, surprise of, of much of the world. And what I'm referring to here are these anti-satellite weapon tests. And so there are a whole class of weapons which uh, are used to destroy satellites in orbit. Because satellites are in very predictable orbits. Um, you, you know where they are. Uh, 
And so uh, you can do things uh, as a result of that. Some of that is uh, non-destructive, such as uh, jamming signals, dazzling uh, satellites, uh, so disrupting the ability to do, say, imaging through lasers and so forth. Um, but then there is the possibility of actually blowing up a satellite. And that can be done through rendezvous proximity operations. So you take one satellite and you maneuver it close to another, and then you detonate that satellite, and, and the shrapnel can destroy it, uh, the target. Another one, which is what's been the focus of a lot of attention, is the direct ascent and, uh, a direct ascent missile. And so that's basically a modified ICBM, which then launches a um, kinetic. So it, it's, it's not explosive. It's just uh, a mass uh, warhead that can be uh, maneuvered, and it slams into the satellite. And these are going at such high speeds that that's extremely destru uh, destructive. And so um, we've seen, uh, I, with the list of uh, different groups that I mentioned, uh, China also did this in 2007 with a, with a missile. And every time this has happened, it's generated a tremendous amount of debris. And people have recognized that and said, whoa, whoa, we can't do this. Um, so there's this competition between states wanting to demonstrate their ability to disrupt space activities if they needed to while also recognizing that these actions are very disruptive. Sure. And what are some of the, the consequences of debris? What harm could that, could that cause? So thank you for that. Yes, the gen so when you have particles in space, pieces of something, some, some space object, and it could be a whole satellite or it could be uh, a used uh, rocket body that was just abandoned in orbit, uh, these things are uncontrolled, and so they're just orbiting about. And uh, we do think of space as being very large, um, but it's also not large enough. So given a, you know, uh, the typical orbital speed is somewhere around 7.5 kilometers per second for low Earth orbit. And these objects are orbiting the Earth in, you know, somewhere between 90 and 120 minutes for that whole span of what we call low Earth orbit, which extends to about 2,000 kilometers above Earth's surface. And so while space is big, you have these objects that are just orbiting Earth in very um, uh, short periods. And so they actually have a very high encounter kind of cross-section. So the collisional potential is actually much higher than I think people realize. And uh, space operators, uh, satellite companies and so forth, they're constantly maneuvering their satellites uh, uh, to ensure that they maintain a safe operating distance from debris within the known possibilities of actually hitting that material. So you generate more debris up there than if you know where all the debris is, then one of the problems is you start now having to do all these maneuvers in which you're dodging things all the time. The real problem is that you can have a lethal debris in the sense that it will disable a satellite or worse yet, it could disrupt crude space exploration uh, and cause a major space uh, safety issue uh, with very small particles, particles um, that are you know, centimeter, uh, maybe down uh, depending on the material and what it's hitting and so forth down to uh, you know, around five millimeters in, in size. 
these objects cannot be easily tracked. And they're also some of the most abundant material that's up there. And so if those things, you know, strike something that they, um, you, or if you have a lot of, if you're uh, orbiting into a cloud of that type of material, you can't easily uh, maneuver about it. And you're just hoping that chance is in your favor. And so if you're doing these type of activities that cause large injections of debris that you can't track, then that's really problematic for all space actors. And as we put more and more material up there, you're also putting more targets. And, and eventually, if you get enough generation through collisions, you can create a situation in which the debris is out of control, in which you just keep generating debris faster than what it uh, would deorbit naturally through gas drag, at least in low Earth orbit. Uh, and that's a situation we certainly don't want to face because that's going to then uh, severely uh, impact our ability to develop Earth and uh, Earth's orbit in a sustainable way. Now, with that in mind, can the Outer Space Treaty possibly negate these conflicts? And who would enforce it? And how would they enforce that to, to prevent that from happening? So the Outer Space Treaty actually is a fairly, uh, I would argue, is a fairly forward-looking treaty. And it's and it's a foundation. It's not the um, the end of the conversation. And I think that's one important thing that we need to keep in mind. So uh, uh, there are a couple critical components in it. One is you can't place weapons of mass destru uh, destruction in outer space, including nuclear weapons, uh, or on the body or on a celestial body. And that's a, another important component. Uh, uh, space is to be used for peaceful purposes only. Uh, and then there are uh, a list of, of, of rights and limitations to those rights. So all states, regardless of their degree of economic development, have the right to use and explore space. And that's really critical that it doesn't matter if, if you have a rocket or not. You still have the uh, right to use and explore space. And so this is, uh, you know, deals with things with capacity building and, and use of, of other countries and, and what ultimately builds cooperation and um, kind of elevation uh, around the world uh, in the ability to access space. So that's kind of one thing to keep in mind. But your use of space and your exploration in space cannot prevent others from also using and exploring space. So you have the right to explore it, but it's not absolute. You can't prevent others from doing so. And there are additional components of that, which is if you think that you're going to be disruptive with what you're doing, you're supposed to notify others about it. So there is this framework. Now, that framework, uh, in many cases, lacks uh, uh, a lot of very important details. But you know whether you think that's a problem or that's a, a feature, a bug or a feature of the design of the treaty, that's what a lot of people argue about. Um, it is in many ways an opportunity for us to develop things further as we learn more and as we gain experience operating in space. Excellent. Well, I can't tell you how much we appreciate your insight and how helpful it is to hear from you on this. So, Aaron, thank you for your time. You're quite welcome. That was Are We There Yet's Caroline Brockler speaking with Aaron Boley, co-director of the Outer Space Institute. There's more to that story. Be sure to check out Caroline's write-up on space governance. That will be on our website, wmfe.org space. 
That's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. You can do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. Or do it the old-fashioned way. Visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.